Well, please turn to page 14 of the notes that we've been going through over these three weeks together, and you have endured to the end. Tonight is the fourth of our four sessions looking at this subject of positive holiness. Let me say for my part, I've enjoyed very much being able to be with you, being able to meet you, and I appreciate the warm hospitality you've extended to me, and I thank uh, Pastor Elworts again for the invitation to be with you for this session on what I think is a very important topic, and that is how we sojourn, how we as Christians are to live in a fallen world. And I've tried to gather a number of subjects related to this theme of what I call positive holiness. And I remind you that I say positive holiness because our holiness is to be thought of in positive terms. By that I don't mean positive and negative, good and bad, as we normally often use it, but rather positive in terms of what it is we are trying to positively achieve, what it is that we are pursuing, what it is that we are after as our goal in the the Christian life, as opposed to stating our Christian walk in negative terms, what it is we don't do, what it is we stay away from. The things that we don't do, the things we refrain from, the things we stay away from, are all because of what it is we are trying to positively accomplish with our lives, namely to bring glory to our God. That is necessary, we saw in our second lesson together. It's necessary because there's something wrong with the world. The Bible speaks of the world, the cosmos, the arrangement of this world around its fallen values and allegiances and priorities. That's the way the Bible uses the word world. There's something wrong than with the world. And the world expresses itself in culture. And so I defined worldliness as fallen values expressed in culture. So it's necessary to pursue holiness, apartness, uh, being separate. That's what holiness means, as we saw. It's necessary because there's something wrong with the world. We're to be in it, but we are not to be of it. In order for you and for me to have the courage to stand against the tide of the culture. We're going to have to firmly believe that the world has it wrong. That the world has nothing really the world has nothing at all as a matter of fact to offer to the Christian. Again, world being defined as fallen values expressed in in culture. And so we looked at Romans chapter 1 to see that people know God, all men were made to know God in the voice of their creator. But we saw that men do not want to know God, and as a result, they are rendered foolish, failing to apply the truth that God has given them, and you see that played out in the world. You and I have to be firmly convinced that the world has nothing to offer to the Christian in order for us to be willing to stand against the tide. Now, how do we do that? We saw in the fourth lesson the means by which that happens. God has given us the instrument to effect holiness in our lives, keeping us set apart appropriately from the value system of the world. And that means is the Bible, the Scriptures, the Word of God. Jesus said in John 17, as he spoke about the relation, prayed about the relationship between the believer and the world, he said to the Father, Father, sanctify them, that is, set them apart, make them holy by your truth, your Word is truth. And we saw that through the Word, we are able to see the values that God has. 
and therefore the values that we should share as opposed to those that the world, uh, the world possesses. And we have to analyze, we saw, the values that we are confronted with uh, in, in culture. Because sometimes the things that the world values will be the same things that we value. Because of common grace and the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. You may remember that from uh, a few weeks ago. And so the world values, at least to some extent, and a, a, a decreasing extent, but nonetheless to some extent, things like marriage and family. And these are values that come from a biblical worldview. And we should honor that and we should be thankful that that's the case in God's common grace in the world. But, of course, the world values all sorts of sinful things as well. Sensuality and, and wealth and, and celebrity and so on. So we have to analyze what is being expressed in the culture and ask whether or not it is worldly or whether or not it is godly. It's the Word of God that will inform us with regard to that. We looked at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in, in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we saw that that's actually a logical process that starts with teaching or doctrine and then results in reproof or conviction. But the Bible goes on to instruct us on how to correct the things about which we have been convicted as we read the Word of God and then to give us instruction to establish disciplined habits of righteousness by which we live. We left off last week saying that in an ongoing way, you and I need to develop convictions about the things we will do and not do by asking the question, what's right with a particular thing rather than what is was wrong with it? And we offered some principles from Scripture that will help us make those decisions in our everyday lives. And that brings us then to page 14. And we're going to try to finish then pages 14 through 19, looking at the mission of holiness. And you see at the top there that I've titled this lesson, Out of the Salt Shaker. And the church could be considered a salt shaker because we are the salt of the, the, salt of the earth. And so the salt kind of comes together in the shaker. But the idea is that the salt shaker is indeed to be shaken and salt is to come out of it and to go out into, into the world and to have its preserving effect. And so the mission of holiness is not for us to withdraw ourselves from the world. We're to be separate from the world's values and priorities and allegiances, but we are in the world while not being of it. And we are in it for a very important purpose, to carry out the mission that God has in his world. And he's doing that through us. And so that's what this lesson is about on page 14. And I say at the top, every genuine believer is part of the church, the body of Christ. No matter where they live, what their race or level of spiritual maturity, the moment you come to Christ, you are part of the church. And the word that's translated church in the New Testament means called out one. Christians are called out of the world and into the church. But we're not simply called out of something, but we're also called to something. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, I'm writing unto the church of God which is at Corinth, 
to them that are sanctified, that is set apart, holy ones, saints, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now we've seen, as I say, that holiness means to be separate, to be set apart. The church is, of course, not called out of the world physically, but rather spiritually. And if you care to jot down 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, and just listen as I read, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, where Paul says, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but then says, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, he says, you would have to leave this world. But I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. And so Paul is assuming what Jesus taught in John 17, that we are in the world and it's God's will that we be physically in the world and we are going to rub shoulders then with worldlings. And in order for us to avoid that, the only way to do so would, for us to be, would be for us to actually leave this, leave this world. So we're not called out of the world physically, but rather spiritually. It means that, I say, we do not operate according to the world's arrangement and its distorted values. Instead, we march to a different beat as we live out a different set of values. But then that raises the question, why has God left us here on earth? Because if that's really the deal, that we're to live out a different set of values, I say in that next paragraph, you know the best place for that to happen is in heaven. I mean, just beam me up so I don't have to mess with all of this fallenness around me. If God wants me to live a different kind of life, and he does, and if that's it, if that's an end in itself, then just take me home now. But of course, the Lord hasn't done that. Here we are. Why has he chosen not only to tell us to live these different kinds of lives, but to leave us here to do it? And I say in that third paragraph, if all he wants is for us to live according to different values, why doesn't he just take us to heaven now? Why doesn't he just take us out of this world? After all, it'd be a lot easier to live a holy life when free from the temptations and difficulties of a fallen world. You know, sometimes I think, I'm convinced, that many Christians believe that we are just here biding our time until we die or until Jesus returns. You all remember the restaurant Bill Knapp's? My family used to love going there, and my young family used to love going there. And I say young for this reason, because Bill Knapps had a reputation of being a place where older folks would, would gather. So much so that Bill Knapps became known as, was nicknamed God's waiting room. <laughs> and I'm convinced that many people see the Christian life as one big Bill Knapps. We're just waiting until God calls us home. But friends, we are not just biding our time. 
God has left us here with very, very important work to do, a mission to accomplish. Why has God left us here? Middle of that third paragraph, the answer lies in the fact that God has more for us than holy living. Holy living is not the end, but it's the means to the end. The purpose God has for us is to bring glory to Himself in our lives and to use us to reach others to do likewise. In other words, we've been called out in order to call others in. Now you may recall from session two in the notes that you have, God created the world and mankind for His purposes. and He, in Genesis chapter 1, gave the first man and first woman, an orientation to his world, who God is, who they are, why he has them here. He instructed them regarding their duties. And yet man fell into sin, desiring to be God rather than give worship to God. And the result was disorientation. God gave an orientation to his world, but sin, the entrance of sin, disoriented everything. Now nothing fits. Nothing looks right. Everything has gone everything has gone wrong and very quickly in human history things go south in terms of horizontal relationships between human beings Adam and Eve Cain and Abel but that was all stemming from the broken vertical relationship between man and God so God gives an orientation sin brings disorientation and God is now calling people out of the world to redirect their values by replacing their idolatry with worship. He has called us to participate in His work of reorientation. God's original design, He gives an orientation. This is who I am. This is who you are. This is why I placed you here. But sin brings disorientation, and God is now in this grand process of reorientation. And He includes you and me in that mission. So Jesus said famously in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It's thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out, to be trodden under foot of men. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. You're, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Paul in Titus chapter 2, I have listed for you there, said to, to slaves. He said, slaves, obey your, your masters. So that, and here's the reason. Here's why you Christian slaves should behave yourself in a godly way. So that you adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. So that people see the purity of your life and the obedience of your life. And are used, uh, and you are used in order to bring others to the Creator. Philippians 2, Do all things without murmurings or disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. And then lastly, top of page 15, Peter says, Beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which, you, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. 
We are here for a mission. God has left us here, not to just bide our time, but as called out ones, be used by Him to call in other ones. By our lives, by our words, by our, by our deeds. We're to be engaged in the evangelistic task that includes our different, holy, set-apart lives. So one author has said that evangelism exists where worship does not. The reason that there is evangelism at all, the reason that there are evangelists, and I don't mean professional evangelists, I mean evangelists just you and me, regular folk, who are to buy our lives and buy our words, show people something different, tell them about how they can be reoriented to the God who made them. The reason that evangelism exists is because worship does not. We were made for worship. Sin has interrupted, severed that worship. And now evangelism is to be carried out by ambassadors who possess different values, different priorities, and different allegiances from the world. Top of page 15, I say, unless one grasps issues of purpose and calling, he does not have the proper framework from which to make the so-called small decisions of life. And so, in the remainder of this lesson, I want to give a number of biblical facts that help you and me make decisions, applying these principles to the small and big decisions of life. And using these, these particular principles because we understand the purpose for which we are here. If you don't understand the purpose for which you're here, then you don't have a criteria for making decisions in your life. It all starts with purpose. Why am I here? Why has God left me here? And so let's make sure we understand that. So fact number one. Purpose determines life. Our steps are ordered by what we believe to be our purpose. But since many have not given conscious thought to their purpose, the manner in which they live their lives displays this aimlessness that results from a purposeless perspective. Believers have been instructed regarding their purpose, and so they do not need to drift. God has made it very clear. I've created you for my glory. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now, we're going to try to give some meat to that in, in just a moment. Because that's just a, that can be just a vague statement without any definition to it. But it's very clear that God has made us for a purpose, and that purpose is His, His glory. And so no Christian person has any excuse for drifting through life aimlessly. God has told us what our purpose is, and now we need to order our lives around that purpose. You know, I said for many Christians, life is just one big Bill Naps. Or, another way to think of it, is for many aimless Christians, life is just one big Saturday at the mall like a teenager. Just wandering around, not there for any particular reason, not going anywhere in particular, not there to purchase anything in particular, just hanging out. Aimlessness. No excuse for a Christian to live an aimless life. Now what is then God's glory? God's glory is the display of His character. 
If you want a succinct definition of God's glory, it is to display his character, what he is like. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do all, and now substitute that definition. Displaying the character of God. In the context of 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, and then concluding in chapter 10, where verse 31 says, Therefore, in summary of those three chapters, here's what you do. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all to display the character of God. And in 1 Corinthians 8, what aspect of the character of God needs to be displayed as we make decisions about whether we should eat certain kinds of things, drink certain kinds of things? Well, God's love. Love dictates that I care what effect my behavior is going to have on someone else. And so in taking that into consideration and showing love to someone else in making a decision about whether I should eat or drink, I'm displaying the character of God. I'm glorifying Him. To bring glory to God means to display His character. That's why in Romans 3.23, when it says, All have sinned and fall short of what? glory of God falls short of what? The character of God. We're not like God. (laughs) We were made in His image and we were made to be like God in the way we think, in the way we talk, in the way we act. But sin has rendered us unlike God, falling short of the standard of His character. God's character is the display, or God's glory is the display of His character. Now, I'll get off this fairly quickly. I know it's late. But perhaps some of you are familiar with how theologians seek to categorize the character qualities of God. If you just think about going through your Bible and looking at all it says, all it reveals about the character of our God, you could make a a long list. And so our God is God. The Bible says just straightforwardly, God is love. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is compassionate. God has full authority as the Creator, or we call that His sovereignty. God knows everything. That is, He's omniscient. God has all power. He is omnipotent. God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. And you could go on listing the character qualities, the attributes of God. Now, this is what theologians do. They have two major categories of all of those attributes of God. Those categories are variously named. Sometimes they're called God's incommunicable attributes, sometimes his communicable attributes, but here's this, uh, these two words are easier. The character qualities of God's greatness and those of his goodness. And in the category of his greatness are the things that belong to God alone. Things you can't possess, things you and I can't do. So that would be things like his sovereignty. You'll never be sovereign. Things like His omniscience and His omnipotence and His omnipresence. These are all things that belong to God and to God alone. And so they are incommunicable. They can't be shared by His creatures. But then you have this other category. His goodness or His communicable attributes. Things that can be shared and reflected by His creatures. His image bearers. And those are His love and His grace and His mercy and His compassion and His truth and His faithfulness. And we are called to bring glory to God. We are to display His character, the character qualities that fall in this category of His goodness or His communicable attributes. 
And that's the purpose that God has given us in this life. Why? Because God made us in His image because He likes to see His reflection in His creation. We were made to reflect God back to God in His character qualities. Now, that's, that's our purpose. And that determines then the decisions, the small and the big decisions we have made. And God has said, I want you to display my character, reflect me back to me now in a mission that I have given to you. And that's the second point on page 15. God has given us a mission. And that mission is to be carried out through his institution in this age called the church. Ephesians 3. God's intent was that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known, now notice this, by the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. And Paul concludes Ephesians 3 with these words, unto him be glory, where? In the church, by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Jesus, before he ascended back to the Father, after he completed his mission on earth, gave his final instructions to his first followers. We know it as the Great Commission. And Jesus said, I want you to go into all the world, make disciples. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Now, what does that have to do with the church? Here's what. If you were to go through the fifth book in your New Testament, Book of Acts, you guys are doing a series through Acts. About where are you in Acts? Chapter 3. So you're past Pentecost and the establishment of the church. So Jesus said, here are your instructions. I'm going back to the Father. You go to the city, the city being Jerusalem, and wait till you receive power to begin this mission. What do they do? They go to Jerusalem. And what do we find them doing in Acts chapter 2? Waiting. How long have they been waiting? About a week. Uh, and... Then the Holy Spirit comes. And in Acts chapter 2 begins the mission of Matthew 28 and Luke 24. How do I know this? Because in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, Peter summarized what, has ha what happened. And he said, be baptized every one of you. And he said, he said, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of sins. Now, repent, forgiveness of sins, and baptized are all things that you find in Luke 24 and Matthew 28 for the Great Commission. And so the Great Commission started in Acts 2, and here's another thing that started in Acts 2, the church. And the, Now hear this. The mission and the church started at the same time, and they go forward hand in hand. You can't have the Great Commission without the church. And there should be no church that is not completely focused on the Great Commission. They go forward hand in hand. So God has called us out of the world to Himself to reflect His character, and He has sent us on this mission as now His church into the world to preach the Gospel and see others come to Him to reflect Him back to Him. God has given you a mission. Thirdly, God has prepared you, you, and me to accomplish the mission. I have a number of passages listed at the bottom of page 15, another one at the top of page 16. 
passages that most of you are familiar with where the Bible talks about the giftings that God has given to His people. He's given us these instructions and then He has gifted each of us to participate in the carrying out of that mission. This is your life's purpose and God has endowed you with abilities and gifts and experiences and passions that are to be used to that end. And so God has prepared you. Ephesians 2. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Workmanship. Greek word poema. We get English poem from it. Some translations say we are His craftsmanship or we are His masterpiece or we are His work of art. Hear this, friend. Every experience that you have gone through in your life, a sovereign God knew about that. Even the difficult experiences. And God has prepared you sovereignly to be used in the work that He has called you to. You are His poema. So that includes all of the experiences that He's allowed to come into your life. It includes the giftings, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Peter chapter 4. And if you look at the top of page 16, Romans chapter 12 as well has a list of gifts that God has given to His people. Now, it is my, it is my view, uh, and folks differ about this, but it is my view that these four passages in the New Testament that give lists of gifts are not exhaustive. That is, these, these four passages don't contain every gift there is. The, the Bible doesn't contain every gift there is. But rather, these four passages are to be representative. To simply say that we all have different gifts and every one of us has gifts and those gifts are to be used for the purpose that the giver gave them for. And so, I don't spend a lot of time having people go through gift tests and gift inventories personally. Uh, we, we actually have a, a profile at our church where we just have people fill out, you know, what are your experiences? What are you able to do? What do you like to do? Uh, those kinds of things so that we can put a round peg in a round hole in putting them uh, into, into work in the mission. But you have been uniquely designed by God, wired by God, to participate in this mission. Now here's a fourth fact, biblically. God has placed you in the mission. Have you ever considered, friends, <laughs> how you wound up in Royal Oak, Michigan. I mean, did God did God move a bunch of pieces in your life providentially to place you where you are? The answer to that is absolutely yes. In fact, in Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, Acts 17 and verse 26, Paul, speaking before philosophers in Athens, Greece, says to them, he says that God has determined the times appointed for us and the exact places where we should live. You see, you didn't determine where you were going to be born. You didn't determine where your parents were going to move you if they did. You didn't determine that your parents wouldn't move you if they didn't. God has worked providentially in all of that to place you where you are. And God has placed you in the vicinity of Royal Oak, Michigan to carry out His mission. He has called you and gifted you to participate in this mission at this place at this time. 
And I say under that point, we use the word call often to refer to God's special work in one's life to direct to a particular vocation. And so we'll talk of someone being called to the ministry. And the words call and vocation are related terms because the Latin word vox means voice. That's where we get vocation from. So one is urged to hear and obey God's voice, His call to His vocation, His calling. But hear this. Contrary to popular notions, all Christians are called to the ministry. And the only issue is how and where one is going to minister. The word minister in your New Testament is just the word for serve. Our individual calling involves how God has wired us, point made earlier, but also the circumstances in which He has placed us. Now with all of that, Every decision you make, big and small, needs to be made with regard to whether or not it will advance the mission that God has called us to. Period. If you decide to move, relocate, now see, I can say this, I'm leaving, this is my last night. If everybody gets mad, I'll let pastor clean up. But what I'm saying to you, I've said to my own congregation. We don't make decisions to relocate simply because it's sunnier down there. Now, you might have to relocate because your job relocates you, because you have family who need your help, you have health issues that require a warmer climate, or something. all kinds of providential reasons where God moves His people around. But God places you in ministry. And your decisions with regard to where you're going to be are always to be about the purpose that God has given us. Will this decision, will this, for example, relocation, advance the mission? How many times have you known Christian people who decide to relocate for some lesser reason? And then you say, by the way, where are you going to go to church? I don't know. We'll find a place. You see, friends, the church has been given a mission, and you're part of the church, and you're part of that mission. And you make every decision, small and great, with regard to whether it will advance the mission. And so I say in this final paragraph, decisions regarding how I pursue service and where I serve should intentionally seek to advance the mission. So I may seek training to enhance how I serve, or I may change where I serve to a more needy area. But in any case, we should never sacrifice present ministry for potential ministry. What I'm saying there is, you don't leave what God has given you to do hoping that something else will come up. You leave intentionally in order to advance the mission. Now last but not least, Lesson 7, The Grace of Holiness. With everything that we've talked about now in these four sessions, I hope that you've come away with a sense of weakness, of dependence that says, Oh Lord, I can't do this. You have called me to great things, and I'm not great. I can't do this. And this last lesson then is to encourage you with regard to that. 
that the one who called you is faithful and he will, he will do it. And so page 17, God finishes what he starts. And I say there, depending on how it's done, preaching on holiness can sometimes be hazardous to a believer's spiritual health. Sometimes we preachers, and I include myself in this, succumb to preaching what one author has called the deadly bees. Be better. Be more. Or be like. And so we preach these, we preach these sermons and we, and we say that kind of thing over and over again. And we leave feeling very guilty, but not knowing that we're empowered by God to carry out the things to which He, he calls us. And so for those who are sensitive to their own sin and failure to live up to God's standard, that kind of preaching can be discouraging if not accompanied by the hope through which this can be accomplished. The bad news is we simply cannot live holy lives on our own. The good news is God is at work in our lives and God finishes what He starts. The Bible says, He which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God does not save us and then leave us on our own to grow. In fact, it's only through our relationship with Him that we're able to grow. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in Me and I in Him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without Me, you can do nothing. The ultimate means of our salvation and our sanctification is found in the Gospel. A full grasp on the Gospel message will inform us regarding what God has done, what God is doing, and what He will do in our lives. And in turn, that should strengthen us to pursue godliness, knowing that we're not left to ourselves. and Therefore, we can live with full assurance that our struggle is not in vain. What is the gospel? The glorious message that God's grace has delivered us from our sin by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that has ongoing effects, not just when you get saved, but ongoing effects in our lives. Let's look at those quickly. Growth for us, in godliness requires dependence on God's grace found in the gospel. And that grace, that good news is that God is at work in your life, not just in the past when you came to Christ, but in the present as well. We see that in Romans chapter 1. I have it there for you. Where Paul writes, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, see the note at the bottom there. This was written to Christians. People who were already saved. Chapter 1 and verse 7 says, It's written to all that are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, as I just read in verse 15, he says he's ready to preach the gospel to those that are at Rome. The content of the 16 chapters of the letter to the Romans is not merely past events but it focuses on present and future realities as well. The gospel is continuing to work in your life in the present, but also, top of page 18, will continue to work in your life in the future. Romans chapter 8. I have that long passage there for you. You're familiar with it. We won't read it. Except to note in verse 30, which is about five lines down, where Paul lists four things that God has done in the lives of believers. He says that He predestinated us. Now, when did that happen? In eternity past, right? Predestined? He says He predestined us. Then it says He called us. Now, when did He call you? He called you when you came to Him. 
in salvation. So that may have been two years ago or 20 years ago. For me, it was 30 years ago that I came to Christ. So in the past, eternity past, predestined, in time past, called, when I responded to that call, He did the third thing. He justified. That's in time past. So far, three of the four are all in the past. And then He says, and those He justified, He also glorified. And when were you glorified? You haven't been. I'm looking at you. I can tell you don't have a glorified body. Neither do I. When will you be glorified? That's in the future. How can it be given in the past tense, glorified, just like predestined and called and justified and glorified? Here's why. Because in the mind of God, it is as good as done an unbroken chain from predestined to called to justified to you being glorified. There is nothing you can do. There is nothing that anyone can do to you that will break that chain in the life of the child of God. Thanks be to God. And so the good news of the Gospel is that God through Jesus Christ is at work in the lives of those He has called out of the world and to His mission. And there is nothing this world can do, nothing Satan can do to break up the work that God has determined to do and has already begun in the life of the believer. You see the same thing in Titus chapter 2, second half of page 18. I have that listed for you. I'll let you look at that on your, on your own. Growth in godliness requires dependence upon God, but it involves a second very important thing. Page 19. Growth in grace requires not just dependence, but devotion to the disciplines of God's grace. Yes, indeed, it requires us to depend upon the grace of God that is operative in our lives, both in the past, in the present, and will continue into the future. But we also must devote ourselves to the disciplines of God's grace. Based on the truths that are outlined above, one might understandably ask, well, if God has already guaranteed that I'm going to grow, what's my role? Or put another way, if I'm 100% dependent on God's grace, is my devotion even necessary? And the answer is an unqualified yes, because it's not a 50-50 proposition. You have some dependence and some devotion. We are 100% dependent on God's grace and 100% devoted to the disciplines of God's grace. You remember in John chapter 1 and verse 14, I have reference there, where the Bible says that Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. Full of grace and full of truth. It doesn't mean he had a little bit of grace and a little bit of truth. He 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 was all of grace and he is all of truth, and we are to be all dependent and all devoted to God. Now notice this. Those who try to balance those are going to end up frustrated. Those who are devoted, but they're not dependent on God's grace, are joyless Christians. You've known people like that. Maybe you are like that. But those who are dependent, they revel in God's grace, but they're not devoted, live licentious lives. Lives of license. But it is all of grace for us to be dependent and devoted to 
before Jesus Christ. Knowing what God has done finally and what God is doing and what God is going to do in our lives. Let us, friends, go forward and live our lives for Him and His purpose. This positive goal will require that we avoid certain behavior. But that which is given up cannot compare to what is gained. A life that's lived for the God who made us and who bought us is going to yield reward both now and in eternity. And I love this last phrase. It's not mine. I stole it from somebody else. Right now counts forever. May God bless you as you seek to live out these principles of positive holiness in your individual lives and in the collective life of this church. Let's ask God to help us. Father, we thank You for these weeks we've been able to have together to look at this extremely important issue of the work that You have done, are doing, and will do in our lives through Jesus Christ. Thank You, Father, that You have called us out of the world to Yourself and to Your mission. I thank You for these brothers and sisters who evidently want to grow in their understanding and in their execution of that mission. Thus, they're here. I pray as we contemplate what we have have learned that You will help us to make application where we have fallen short where perhaps we have not understood our purpose or perhaps have not even taken the time to think about why You have left us here. How does my life, how do our lives fit into the grand scheme of Almighty God? Help us to to be moved to praise and worship when we consider that we, puny, sinful, weak, we, have a place in Your eternal plan. And that right now in our lives counts forever. Help us to see it for the great privilege that it is to be called by Your name and to be Your ambassadors in Your mission. And motivated by gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done for us and the the mission to which You have called us. Help us to set aside every weight that slows us down in the race that is the Christian life. Help everyone here, Lord God, to run the race with perseverance that's been marked out for us. Help us, Lord, to use the gifts and abilities that You have given. You're the giver. You have given them. We are stewards, managers of what You've provided. Help us, Lord God, to use those for the purpose for which You have given them. Thereby, may we Bring glory to You. Reflect Your character in all that we put our hands to. May people be brought to Christ as a result of the holy lives that we live. The message that we bring. And as a result of all of that, when we come to the end of this race, may we hear Your approval. Well done, good and faithful servant. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.